Hey there, welcome to the Universal Blueprint, a podcast series on the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals. The UN created these goals to be a blueprint to achieve a better and more sustainable future for all. Every episode, we'll delve into one goal and bring an expert in to share their perspective on it. Together, we'll learn how to make these goals into realities. This podcast is brought to you by the United Nations Association chapter at Northeastern University and is produced by Mahira Shimano and Elizabeth Yeager. Welcome back to the Universal Blueprint. My name is Mahira Shimano and I'm the host of today's episode, SDG 10 on Reduced Inequalities. We're so happy to be back after a long summer break and we hope that during these times with the pandemic, everyone is staying safe. So this episode is a little different to the other episodes we've recorded. We actually partnered with the UNA chapter at Howard University to come up with a discussion-based podcast episode talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and racial inequality in the United States. As the only HBCU UNA chapter, they were key in leading the campus chapters of UNA in uniting in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd and the rise of the BLM protests. This episode, I had a conversation with two members, Ona Nelson, the president of UNA Howard University, and Maggie Chambers, vice president of public relations. Unfortunately, we faced some difficulties with Wi-Fi connections cutting off during some of the discussion, but we hope you enjoy this discussion as much as we enjoyed speaking on it. So um, thank you guys for joining me on this podcast episode today. Um, We're so excited to be able to talk to you guys and, you know, be able to have this discussion with you. Could you guys start by maybe introducing yourself, what position you hold at UNA, um, and what year or major you are? Okay, I just, I'll go quickly start. So hello, my name is Ona Nelson. I am a senior international business major with concentrations in emerging markets in Sub-Saharan Africa with a double minor in political science and economics. And I'm from Piscataway, New Jersey, and I attend Howard University. Hi, um, my name is Maggie Chambers. I am a senior international business major with a minor in political science and a concentration in Middle Eastern studies and affairs. I am from Rockingham, North Carolina, and I also attend Howard University. That's great. And I am the vice president of public relations. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess we'll just dive into the questions. Could you talk about some of the connections between the global goals, the SDGs, um, and the Black Lives Matter movement? As we said in our statement before, we released a press release right after um, the George Floyd killings, wanting to make sure that we set our piece about the Black Lives Matter being an historically um, Black college or university. And so this issue with Black Lives Matter is more than just reduced inequalities. It's a human rights issue. Black people in the U.S. have been marginalized for centuries, ever since that, I guess, when slavery came to the United States off the shores in around the 1600s. And so it it affects a lot of things. We have environmental racism, which is climate action, um, decent work and economic growth. So being Black in America could really help um, disable you from getting a lot of economic opportunities which is another form of marginalized and systematic racism. It could affect your quality education. It could affect your health care, um, even your gender. If we um, get into feminism and how black feminists weren't always taken seriously as white feminists and also intersectionality. Um, there's just so many things I can list off here, but 
in general, in general, it affects way more than just reduced inequalities because it can touch every, almost every SDG goal because you can look at a lot of SDG goals and kind of split it down the middle between how race affects your life. So, for example, p poverty in America, it affects um, predominantly in America, uh, people of color more than affects our white counterparts. And so if we kind of look at our SDG goals as, as not just goals that affect the world, but we have to understand how does this affect certain communities? Because it affects more, certain communities more than others. I can uh, give my own spiel. I'm a, I'm a very transparent person, just to let everybody know, um, you and the people that are listening. Um, so I like to keep it as plain as possible. Uh, I'm not necessarily uh, as privy to the SDG goals as maybe Ona or even some of the listeners, but looking at them now um, in their, you know, in the list that they're in, um, in a lot of ways, as Ona said, the intersectionality of Black people, I think, is very forgotten. Um, specifically with Black Lives Matter, you know, they focus more so on SDG, SDG Goal 10 with police brutality. And I think that's very important to note with Black Lives Matter that a lot of times, um, they get called out for not speaking out about certain things. Okay. But the thing is that that's not necessarily their thing. Um, they have other organizations that handle those things. Um, but if being, if we're talking about being Black in America, it talk, I mean, almost all of them, there is something that affects Black communities. When we got clean water, if you think about Flint, Michigan, you got gender inequality, you know, not only being a woman do you get paid less, but being a woman of color, you get paid even less. Um, talking about life below water and looking at Louisiana right now and everything that they're dealing with um, in their infrastructure, which is mostly an African-American democratic run area, if you're looking at the cities that are actually really affected by um, the hurricanes that happen in the Gulf. Um, if you're looking at hunger, education, quality, energy, um, infrastructure in the Black community, if you look at cities like Baltimore to compare to, you know, some other cities, um, the infrastructure is nearly where it's meeting. And so I think that it's good to, that when you're talking about Black Lives Matter, understand what they stand for, which is mostly the police brutality piece. But, um, well, not mostly, that is what they stand for. Um, but I think that it's also good to understand the intersectionality of being a Black person, um, because that is really where I think separates the winners and the losers when talking about race, is if you can really understand that being Black is also my identity, I also have other pillars. It's just a pillar in the identity of me. Yeah, um, I think, like you said, the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, racial injustice in the U.S. touch more, more than just one SDG, honestly. Um, and like you guys said, like, and gave examples of that it touches other SDGs as well. You talked about your press release, which I also read. Um, and you talked about, you know, the mistreatment of Black lives, like the killing of George Floyd and many more, as a violation of human rights. Um, and also, the UN Human Rights Chief, Michelle Bachelet, um, also stood by the statement. So, how would speaking about police brutality against Black Americans as a human rights violation change the current narrative around this issue, or maybe not change the narrative at all? Well, I wrote the press release. So I appreciate, um, I mean, Ona definitely gave me a very detailed draft, but, you know, um, I just remember late at night kind of just really pouring 
a lot of myself um, into that press release um, and really kind of opening myself up to expose myself to a unit community. As you know, Ona can correct me, uh, Howard is the only HBCU UNA chapter in the entire organization. Um, and so I think in, in itself, uh, that's something to talk about, um, to show like a lot of times um, African-Americans are discouraged uh, to even pursue international careers. A lot of times it's like, well, we have problems here at home. Why do you want to help other people if we're dealing with our own issues? Um, but I think that it being a human rights violation, um, it's narrowing it down as that is, is such a big picture issue for a lot of people to understand that they don't see it as that way. Like, because, you know, we're talking about other, for some reason, a lot of Americans uh, see people in We might have lost. I don't, that's okay, no problem. I can continue about and get, when she comes back on. Okay. I know everybody's Wi-Fi issues right now, but, you know, going off what Maggie said, we are the only HBCU right now in the UNA campus chapter community. And so while that gives us a lot of, um, a voice to speak for African-Americans and black people in general. I think, you know, there's a lot of pressure in a way where we have to make sure we're saying the right thing, doing the right thing and speaking on issues that affect black lives. Cause at the end of the day, I think what I really want to touch on is that we as black Americans are disproportionately killed compared to our white counterparts. What does that mean? Black people are only about 13% of the population compared to a like, I think either 60 or 70%, that's the white population, the majority in America. And so when you look at the numbers, black lives are way up there in comparison to the white counterparts. Mm -hmm. Now, for only being 13% of the population, that's a really high number and that's something to be concerned of. Why are black Americans getting killed as much as our white counterparts when we don't take up as much of the population as they do? And I really wanted to make that point because I know a lot of people like to bring up statistics and they say, well, white people get killed more too, but it's, that's not the point. You have to be able to interpret numbers and statistics because if you don't, you have confirmation bias, which is going to... I allow you to feel um, secure in your own belief because you have numbers to back you up. But if you're interpreting those numbers incorrectly, then it's you're, you're still wrong, right? And so just in general, we want to take that issue and kind of take those numbers and say, a human rights violation. If you look at um, other countries in the world, the U.S. is very vocal and prominent about calling out certain countries about their human rights violations because it's easy to see the minority in other countries and how the majority treats the minority. But for some reason, the U.S. turns a blind eye internally. So as Black Americans, we are the minority and we're being disproportionately killed by the police. We also are undergoing um, systemic racism and a lot of systemic policies that, that allow us to be killed off more and allow us to be mistreated in terms of healthcare, in terms of economic inequality, et cetera, it can go on. And so speaking at it against this, I think, well, and with numbers and facts and interpreting those numbers and facts correctly can help people understand that we, it's the same type of structural racism that happens in other parts of the world. You have a minority being oppressed by the majority in terms of policies, regulations, um, economic system, et cetera. And you want to make sure that is shed light upon because the U.S. is the number one contributor to the United Nations. And with that, they contribute the most money comes a lot of power. And so a lot of times you see in a lot of these um, these systems of hierarchy, the people who contribute like the most money will have 
the most they, and that's just the nature of a lot of these systems. So the U.S. can't just fall back and just say, we contribute this so we don't get to get criticized. No, that's not the point. The point is to belong to a body that will call you out when you're doing HR violations. And if you're contributing to this, you want that feedback to create a better country for yourself and to be a better citizen of this world. So I think that we have to take accountability where it is and talk about these issues and not just pretend like they're not existing because it's easy to hide. Yeah, I think what you said is really valid. Um, And now, you know, thinking about it in that way, like the majority versus minority um, in other countries, it's, you know, even like a lot of people in the U.S. say like, oh, this country is doing this. Like, why aren't we doing anything to like help it? Or why aren't we calling it a human rights violation? But in the U.S., when it happens, no one, you know, bats an eye towards it or says anything about it being a human rights violation, which I think was really when I read the um, press release, although like I did see the the U.N. um, talk about it as like human rights violation um i hadn't seen a lot of it prominently in news sources so i was really surprised and you know agreed with your statement yeah i just uh got in on my phone but um kind of like you just said what the point i was trying to make overall is just i feel like um internally in the united states it didn't make that much of an impact um and it's kind of like ona said when you're under an administration you know all shade intended, but when you're under an administration um, that doesn't necessarily respect an international authority or even understand, you know, the pieces of global awareness, um, doesn't even understand that America is not an island on itself, um, it's hard to be held accountable for the, the violations that you're enacting. Because like I said, as Americans, it's hard for Americans that don't understand the intersectionality of being a person of color and being an American. They see it as like, well, you have so much privilege because you're an American. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, but also like, I know that I'm lucky to be an American. Um, I mean, more or less, but um, at the same time, I deal with different things too. So Mm -hmm. that's what I was trying to get at. Yeah. I think I I definitely do agree with you. Um, And more so, um, I did say earlier that we weren't going to focus on one SDG, but there is like one, like two goals that I did look at. So um, goal 10.2, um, I'm just going to say it, uh, is by 2030 to empower and promote the social, economic, and political inclusion of all, irrespective of age, sex, disability, race, ethnicity, origin, religion, or economic or other status. Um, and specific to Black Lives Matter, Um, and racial equality in the U.S. or inequality, what does the empowerment and promotion of social, economic, and political inclusion look like? Uh, Such a, I mean, honestly, it's such a loaded question. I say what it really looks like is understanding that, you know, that even, honestly, the acknowledgement. To give a little bit personal, I guess, about myself, I'm from, like I said, Rockingham, North Carolina, a very, very small town um, by Charlotte. And I had uh, organized a protest against the Confederate statue in my town. And we successfully uh, had, you know, the city manager announce a removal of it and a removal and a replacement in its proper home, which is a cemetery for veterans. Um, I mean, more or less, are the Confederates veterans is a real question, but, you know, neither here nor there. Um, But... I guess I would say that, you know, it's really the acknowledgement 
like acknowledging like, okay, we did wrong. And because we did wrong, we're going to actually do something to change it. Um, People are saying, you know, we can't change history. You can't erase history. We can't do anything about history. We understand that you can't change history, but I think that it all comes down to really acknowledging that the history was like the history was wrong and acknowledging the faults in that and not acting like, you know, that you can just gloss over it, you know, slavery and things like that. Those, those types of actions against African-Americans, they don't only impose economic um, trauma, but just generational mental trauma, um, like feelings in the black community that you can't take away. And so before we even tackle, in my opinion, in the community, like that social economic um, justice piece, I think that we need to, as a whole, acknowledge the wrong that was done to African-Americans and genuinely acknowledge it, not just be like, well, we know slavery was bad. And, you know, but at the same time, you can't do anything to change it. And it's like, yeah, you kind of can, though. Um and listening to the other perspectives. And I also think within the African-American community as well, to really unify and understand that we have more similarities than differences. Um, And that's just like a geographic thing, I think, but it's a really hard question to answer um, what it would look like, Mm -hmm. how I would see it if I was president or something, but maybe Ona can answer a little bit more in depth. I agree. I think it's a difficult question to answer just because you can imagine what would it look like. I don't think anybody expected um, in 2020 to have another racial uproar. And this is not really just anything new. It's just reemerges, I think, every couple of really traumatizing events. Like George Floyd, really, I think this one was, it just kicked it into gear a lot more um, rapidly. And so we're seeing a lot of allies join in. We have a lot more marches, speaking, protests, etc. What I really want to touch on is the difference between equity versus equality. I think that looking toward the future, I think that legislation and policies need to kind of know what the difference is and acknowledge the fact that there is a difference that we need to do better to make sure we're pushing towards more equity. So equality is the same treatment of all. When people are say all lives matter or they shout that from the rooftops it would say we're all equal or we all the constitution is for all equal this equal that etc equal people but the reality is we're not on equal footing so we have generational wealth that a lot of our white counterparts encountered because when they came over to the u.s they came from europe they had a lot more money resources etc they kind of helped build this town so they have a lot of generations of money wealth power to them. And that's not to say every white American in the whole entire country, because I know that's not true. But just in general, that white race has that historical advantage that black people don't. We were brought here by slave ships and most of us and the people who did migrate over migrated into a country that has a, that have a systemic um, structure to oppress those with darker skin. And so equity, to explain that equity means proportional. So we want to look at proportional policies and legislation to address a lot of these issues. For example, um, the water crisis. You know, you want to make sure everybody has equal water. And, but then if somebody says, we need to have equal water and we need to, the, the water system needs to be equal everywhere. But that can't be the case because in one side of the country, you have a lot of 
um, toxic waters. You have a lot of, uh, I don't know, um, a lot of power plants that kind of um, emit toxic waste into the water system, etc. You have lead, which is what's going on in Flint, Michigan. So you will need more resources and more money to um, go into that water system in that particular area because they just have more things to deal with. They've had generations of bad water coming into um, their piping system. Their piping system may be a little bit older. They may just be in an area where there's a lot of rocks in the water that emit a lot of toxic chemicals, which is very frequent in different parts of the country. And so a place that say like California, who's next to a naturally a natural reservoir where it's easier to clean water or not, they're not gonna need as many resources as Flint, Michigan, right? And that's equity. You have to understand and realize what resources are needed and create and propose legislation to help um, adapt to those inequities. So that's what equity is. I don't want to hear people saying, well, why um, don't all lives matter? That's, that's not the point, right? The point is Black Americans, in particular with Black Lives Matter, are getting killed disproportionately more, more than any other race. And disproportionately means, means disproportionately means in in essence of this conversation that we are killed more than we are. So for 13%, like I said before, the population for us to be as be as killed as much as our white counterparts, it's way out of the water. It's disproportionate. It's a lot more, which which shows the issue here. So that means we need equitable policies and legislation in place to make sure this doesn't happen again. It's not about equal policies because at the end of the day, if you look at the numbers and look at the history behind it, it's the same reasons why white men, women, et cetera, are being killed by the police are not always the same reasons that black counterparts are being killed by the police. So we need to address that by looking at equitable um, solutions, then equal solutions. So that will be um, my answer to really distinguish equity and equality and make sure we're focusing on equity and making sure we are adapting to whatever the, the situation calls for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the conversation of equity and equality, even though I didn't include it in the questions, I think is a really valid and important um, conversation to have. And it also touches on kind of the second um, question that I was going to ask in terms of like the global goals. Um, it was kind of what you were talking about with systemic racism and how it's in the system and institutionalized within um, the, you know, the United States system. And so like, Although this is a really big question as well, what do you guys think are some of the ways in which this can be eliminated or systemic racism can be dismantled in some way? Another thing I want to touch on when talking about systemic racism is understanding that this isn't something that is one piece. Like, it's a system. It's perpetuated in itself. Like, it's... it's multiple pieces um you see a lot of things coming out now about especially looking at covid um about black health and how it's been disproportionate in such for such a long time but that's just hell like that's not even talking about like looking at um the way that even in our military system the way that you know black boys are kind of preyed on in a way as you know if you join the military like you get all these benefits like you get to go do this and do this and do this and you get this and you get this you know it's as long as you enlist like you, you might not look like you have any other options but here you have this and even with that and even in with systems within entertainment like if you see the basketball players and the baseball players and the tennis players all of these people 
they are, you know, millionaires almost. You know, they are very wealthy people. However, they still feel that pain and that oppression of that systematic, like, I'm not going to entertain you. Meanwhile, you're out here, you know, doing all these things to my people. And even within their own system, they are not even paid at the same rate as some of their white counterparts, especially in entertainment systems like um, cinema, like movies and, and plays and white, you know, Viola Davis talks about it all the time about how she, you know, is the, is the Barbara Strahan and she's the, you know, this big black name um, in comparison to a lot of white actresses, but she's not paid nearly as much as they are. And so I think that when you're talking about how we can see it break down, um, it's kind of understanding to take it one piece at a time. Um, and when you say inclusion, like really including each other um, and looking at the skills, um, it's just such a loaded question of like how, how to do a, how to dismantle systemic racism. But I think it all starts with really taking it one step at a time, um, looking at each piece in itself and knowing that it's not a race like it's a marathon um and there's so many different facets of it that are perpetuated in systems um but like I said I think we have to get over as a people and as a society all together blacks whites everybody that you know that we are Americans first I think that that's a big thing is like getting over that and then working on each part once at a time, taking it slow. Um, nothing's going to be super fast. And I think it, it's going to take, because there's so many little pieces, because it's a system, it's supposed to be like that. It's a lot of loopholes. A lot of the, the legislation that Donald Trump was talking about this week, like the First Step Act, like everybody was saying how that was just such historic legislation. And in a way it was, it was on the table since, you know, 2015 and, you know, it didn't happen under his administration, but in a lot of his Republican counterparts that praised it were the same ones that voted against it when it was in Congress. But I think it's important to note that his own department of justice is going against a lot of the things that are in the first step act. So it's kind of like, you know, yes, you passed this legislation. Yes, this seems historic, but the system that is the Department of Justice is already taking things away from that. And so I think we have to really take each thing at a time and look at it closely um, if we want to dismantle it for real, you know, not just put a Band-Aid on it, um, but really look at each pillar of what, like looking at justice, okay, then looking at environment, looking at healthcare. Um, because if we try to look at all of them at one time and make these, you know, trillion billion dollar bills say that we're going to give all this money to these different programs. And then when the budget comes out, that's not what it really is. That's just putting a bandaid on it. Um, in my opinion. So, yeah, I agree with Maggie. It's a very, very loaded question. And I think that, you know, we take it one step at a time. What I will say is this. So basically, I don't think that people really understand how much power they do have in the, in the legislative process. I think a lot of people kind of turn a blind eye, hoping that our leaders will lead and they just kind of 
go to their day-to-day -day life and not worry about a lot of these issues. But we the people hold power that the more powerful people don't want us to know about. So for example, the system is, I hear a lot of people talk about how the system is broken and how this is why black people are not are in this state because our system is broken. The system is not broken. It has been designed to work exactly as it's working now. It's designed to oppress, it's designed to marginalize and to keep a certain amount and percentage of people on top. We are still the only country, only developed country that has yet to have a woman president. And we just had our first African-American, we had no, we had our first non-white president with Barack Obama. Yes, he's the first African-American president, but he's just also the first non-white president, period. So that already can show you how the system was designed to work in a certain way. And you could all look at the bios of a lot of these presidents. A lot of them are in the same secret societies, um, secret fraternities. A lot of them went to certain Ivy League schools, etc. So the system is designed to work the way it is to work. But it, it also is allowed to continue this way is because we the people are not paying attention you know people think that they don't have any power in voting and that's another way how people can stay in power like for example leader of the senate leader of the house etc um i don't want to get super political even though like i'm really like i love politics i'm really interested but for example um if you are paying attention to the election in kentucky you know who the senate majority leader is and a lot of his policies that he's um um, he's tr tried to block, and this is not the Senate, this is him as an entire being of a person, one man that was elected out of Kentucky, has so much power in blocking certain policies from taking place, from certain measures for happening, from certain people to get appointed, and for certain people to get appointed. That is one man, right? One man who is also continuing to push this system that is, that is designed to work the way it's supposed to. And then so right now you're seeing the, uh, if you're paying attention to the Kentucky election, you're seeing another um, person who's a veteran come up and challenge, I almost said his name, but challenge this senator from Kentucky. And that's a huge deal. We are taking people who have been in power for years, right? Who have so much power that people are not paying attention to because they're not either reading legislation when it's been putting out, they're not paying attention to a lot of congressional hearings. And I get it, everybody's super busy and we do elect people that we trust to do the good work. But the reality now is the good work is not the good work. The good work is to keep the certain people in power. And so what we have to realize the power we have in our own hands, not only to vote, but to run, to encourage people to run. We also can vote on certain policies within our home state as well. I know when you look at the ballot, you read through it, there are certain policies that people put that you could vote on. You could go to Capitol Hill and you can listen on some of these congressional hearings. You can ask questions. You can email your senator, your congressperson. You can hold them accountable. Now you can tweet them. You can Instagram them. You could call them out on Facebook. You can call them. You can show up to um, where they work and just walk in and put your name down, wait. These are how ways you put pressure on our congressional officials, not only nationally, but state. Um, statewide and locally to do what they said they were going to do. And if they're not doing what they're supposed to do, join a grassroots, put somebody else to run against them, to challenge them out of office. That's what we're seeing a lot more of now. That's why um, people like AOC um, are really inspiring because she ran a grassroots campaign. She had an incumbent who didn't even live in her district that's been creating policies. And he was a big deal on the Hill. This man was running things. Didn't even live in this district. Don't know how he ended up there. But the reality is her grassroots work and her, um, she was able to challenge an incumbent. And now she's creating policies to help people from her community. We need to be doing more of that work. So how do we challenge and 
uh, eliminates um, dismantle racism, we put people in the place that can do it, put people who we trust, put people there who are not taking money from corporations that we pour money into um, to basically lobby and get certain policies passed. Like, for example, don't want to name certain companies, but huge corporations that we kind of lean towards you because of convenience. We put money in their pocket. They hire lobbyists. And they also pay for campaigns, political donations. And so they get certain policies to um, get passed. For example, a lot of these corporations want major tax cuts. So they follow a certain party. They put money in certain people's po pockets. And they say, we want certain tax cuts or for something I'm also passionate about, environmentalism, because it also affects you know, marginalized communities more than others. So companies that, you know, car companies in particular, or companies, big money makers, will buy basically political candidates to make sure that they are allowed to use as much oil as they want, to not have um, carbon emission um, tax or et cetera. So we need to make sure not only are we spending our money and making sure we know who we're spending our money on, corporations that kind of hold that power, but we also need, need to understand who we're supporting and um, locally, statewide, and nationally. And even if we do support, like right now, we live in a two-party system where a lot of us are kind of niched into picking one party or the other, even if not all our political ideologies combined, but we need to somehow hold them accountable. So we need to be emailing, calling, um, donating, and because then once we do that, then we have the ability to kind of say, hey, you know what, not really agree with this policy. I know a bunch of people from my state who elected you into office don't agree either. So we're going to kind of push for this to get passed. And if it doesn't get passed, we're going to probably get somebody to run against you because you're not saying what you did in office. So I think that that was a lot that I kind of dispute out, but accountability, knowing where you put your money, I'm keeping up with the local politics and affairs and legislation and just kind of being knowledgeable in the whole political and legislative process. And that's something we also don't exactly learn in school as much. Something you have to kind of take dedicated time to learn by yourself, which can be annoying. But like I said before, it's designed that way on purpose. They don't want us to know how this works, which is why it's continued to work this way for so much time. But the power is in the people. And people, we need to encourage people to do their own work to make sure that we're putting people in power who can help um, dismantle um, this race, systemic racist system. Mm -hmm. uh, can I just ask super fast? I know Ona spewed out a lot, but I just want to add, um, since we're talking about, you know, our first African-American president, a lot of people are during this time have said, well, systemic racism doesn't exist because we had a black president. Um, I think it's good to note that Ona said, look how long it took, uh, first of all. And second of all, don't act like you loved him the whole time, um, especially looking at all this legislation that Trump is magically... Um, I'm sorry, I'm gonna be partisan. I just am who I am. Um, that he's magically passing. All of this legislation was created under the Obama administration. However, nobody would let it pass. Why? And it's kind of like, 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 and I mean, I challenge, you know, your audience, ask yourself, why? The First Step Act was written in 2015. The HBCU Act was written under Obama's, like was under Obama's administration. The time had lapsed and somebody had to make a decision. So it's kind of like, you know, a lot of these policies that everybody's kikiing about, the opportunity zones, all of these policies were written under his administration. So what happened and why is it suddenly passing now? Um, and I also think it's important to note that the executive branch does not create laws. Um, they don't write them. <laughs> um, that's, I mean, that's civics 101, you know? So like, 
they don't write them. Um, they don't create them. They do vote on, they do, they can veto them and get it sent back to Congress. But the work happens in Congress. The writing of these bills happen by staff assistants, by congressional legislative directors. They are creating these laws. They, you know, and the president, all they really do is just sign them into law. Um, you know, it's checks and balances. And so I think that that's worth saying, too, is like, you know, Ono was pushing this, you know, vote and run. I think that's important because that's who creates the laws. And all, the, all this credit that you give one person, they, I promise you, did not pick up that pen and write that law. No matter which administration it is, no matter if it's the Obama administration, the Bush administration, or the Trump administration, they didn't write it. Somebody else wrote it. And so I think that it's worth noting that how powerful that vote is because, you know, they are the ones that create all the laws. Mm -hmm. uh, also, Maggie, really important. I also want to say this quickly because I think it's really important that we touch light on who was also creating our laws. So you said, yeah, you're exactly right. Laws are not created by the executive branch. They're passed by the executive branch, but they're created by the legislative body. But did you also know that they're, they they claim they write laws, but also a lot of these laws are being written by business people. Of course, also some legislative people by organizations like Alex, American Legislative Ex Exchange Council. And I was watching a documentary that kind of explained how laws are made. And now you have super rich, super influential people who are not just politicians, but ex-politicians, current politicians, business people with a lot of vendettas or certain things they want to get passed are writing laws and they are proposing them to congressional officials. So a lot of these laws are actually written by just, just people with money and influence and power that, you know, are trying to be in favor of the influence and power that they already have but are passing laws in their benefit, not for the people. So we also have to be paying attention to who's writing our laws and what organizations are writing the laws They're, and that are proposing laws to these congressional officials. That is some really, really scary stuff. Terrifying that you have somebody who is totally against climate change, has a big oil corporation, writing laws to get passed, putting money to make sure we do not get um, climate-saving legislation passed. That is absolutely terrifying, but that's also, right now, the kind of political structure we live in, which it's tainted. It's breaking, breaking the way it's supposed to by money, influence, and power, but it's terrifying. So that's what we need to put people in place and power who have integrity and who also are not being bought by a lot of these um, corporations, a lot, of, a lot of, by these very powerful, very rich people, because they are literally, with their money, this is probably one single person saying, I don't want, um, I don't believe in climate change. I have enough money to buy legislation, to buy politicians, to make sure that's not a thing. The top 1% or 10% of the nation's wealth or whatever is controlled by like five people or five corporations. Don't I have the exact numbers off the top of my head? But that just shows you where money and influence is being held. It's not where the regular people are who are mostly affected by these policies. It's where the super rich, mostly white male people are who are making these decisions. And a lot of them are not even politicians. They're people with money who are CEOs of corporations, et cetera. So we have to be, re be really paying attention to who's running our laws as well. 
Yeah, I think the narrative right now is like, oh, you know, you should vote for like the presidential elections. And I think that is important. But more importantly, I think local um, elections, your local representatives, like your people in Congress, your senators, I think are one of the most important people. And I think that narrative kind of came into play um, after a lot of the Black Lives Matter um, protests. Um, especially um, for younger voters and uh, first-time voters, because for them, it's, you know, they're learning about their um, senators and their legislatures for the first time. But, like, they're also passionate about other issues such as, you know, like, racial equality, climate change, other, like, areas. And so a lot of, like, the local people and the local representatives are, you know, one of the most important parts in helping them. And also... You know, we talked a lot just now about domestic institutions. Do you guys think that international institutions like the United Nations has the potential to help with achieving these goals as well? Or, you know, helping out with the larger issue of racism in the United States? I think it's important to note um, with organizations like the UN um, um, that, you know, African-Americans experience um, And I also think it's important to note that this civil rights movement that we are in right now, and it is a civil rights movement regardless of what anybody wants to call it, it's a movement. And it will be in history books. It will be. If, you know, hopefully it will be, you know, we won't have another like lost cause situation. Um, But it will be. And, you know, this is the largest civil rights movement in history. And it's happened in other countries outside of the United States fighting for us African Americans to have some form of some form of, you know, decency almost in this country. Um, and I think that's important to note that how many look at how many different, you know, Canada and, you know, all London and, you know, in even in areas that, you know, supposedly are so destructive, like, you know, the Middle East, they have also spoke out and up against um, the treatment of African-Americans. And so I think that, you know, it's important to note with the UN and with global organizations that um, African-Americans are going through a lot, but, you know, people of color in lots of countries, including places like, you know, including countries in Europe, um, like the UK and some other areas, they experience racism as well. in a different way, different, different form, you know, same girl, new wig, you know, different, it's same situations, but it's just, it looks a little different. Um, and so I think that speaking up and speaking out um, from organizations like the UN and being bold about it, you know, I read what was said um, about, you know, supporting our press release, but I think that being really bold about it um, and saying outright, you know, how you feel um, about the treatment of African-Americans is important, is what's really going to make the difference. Um, but I also think a lot of times with organizations like the UN, um, like WHO, um, international organizations like that, they're very politicized um, in America for some reason. And you can definitely see it now um, with the pulling out of a lot of different organizations that you wouldn't even think that that would even make sense to do um, but because they're being politicized in a way that's so 
less honestly detrimental to what they stand for and so you got some americans um like i'm sure people that are listening to the podcast and people like me and ona and you that respect the un to the utmost extent and agree with the things that they say and then you have some americans that think that you know they're just another group of people trying to tell america what to do so I think that in the United States, um, the politicization, the politicization of politi- politicization of those organizations is taking away a lot of their credibility. And so, um, how we can combat that, um, and how we're going to rebuild the reputation of some of those places in America, um, is going to take um, a different approach. But I think that you know, them speaking up and speaking out and being bold is good. Um, But I think that it's all about the ideology, if you're looking at it domestically. Internationally, you know, you got some countries that are looking at America like, what are you doing right now? Like, why are you leaving these organizations? Um, Because they hold it to a different regard. I definitely agree with Maggie. I mean, to me, just it's about the respect of the institution right if you don't respect something you're not going to listen to what they say and i think that our administration pulling out a lot of these u.n bodies such as who especially in the middle of a worldwide pandemic really just disenfranchises or just kind of for the rest of the americans who don't necessarily understand u.n bodies it just kind of it makes it seem smaller than what it is and what they stand for when you can just pull out because you don't like something that really was not their fault. And so it wasn't even like, in my opinion, a, a well rehearsed or well factated, what's it called reason to just kind of pull out of a well-respected worldwide institution as the WHO, for example. And there's also been plenty more he's pulled out of, our our administration has pulled out of in the past four years, but we're not going to get into that right now. I think that it's a hard question to answer because you ask, can um, the UN solve a lot lot of these issues? But it's hard because I look at the other worlds and the issues that are are going on with, um, let's say, in in Palestine and Israel or what's going on in China. And the UN is stepping in and they're trying to create sanctions and they're trying to, um, hold them accountable, but a lot of these countries are being really reluctant. So a lot of these same issues are prolonged because I think of lack of respect of a higher body. I think a lot, and just internal bias within the nation and the country of a lot of these issues. And that's what the U.S. is kind of experiencing right now, a sense of internal bias. And that's more of like a very colloquial way to put it. Of course, racism is, don't want us to say, oh, it's just internal bias. But if you kind of look at it from an international perspective, they're biased when it terms, in terms of these UN organizations. And that to me doesn't make any sense because why would you pay money to be a part of these to not respect what they say? They're supposed to be a non, an unbiased, un, nonpartisan institution that will help you correct your human rights violations etc. UN, they do a lot with all the UN bodies, but in terms of the UN headquarters in New York, a lot of what they do is try to correct a lot of these 
issues you have in your country. So to me, it's hard to say because I think that is dependent on the country and how much the country respects um, international bodies. I think that you could see definitely throughout American history, and if you look at their um, foreign policy initiatives throughout the years within different administrations, you have some administrations that really respect international bodies, and you have some administrations that don't, which we're kind of seeing right now. And so it, it always changes depending on who right now is running the country, who is in charge of foreign policy, and in that kind of in that capacity. So I think that's a hard question to answer. I would be honest and frank and say, I don't know, because I've just seen it play out in so many different ways. I've seen countries kind of really bring in the UN for help and really try to help um, try to get them to help facilitate a lot of these issues. Then I see other countries that frankly ignore the advice, ignore their sanctions, ignore um, whatever they're trying to do. And it's hard because the UN is also non-governing, right? So they just really can't make laws and make people abide for the most part. That's not their role, right? And so we have to kind of figure out not only as a UN body, but as a country, are you going to respect? Are you paying money to be a part of an institution to respect it? Or are you just doing it for, um, I would say, clout or for prestige or just to say you're a part of this? But are you really um, truly um, attached to the mission? Or also your um, administration, are you willing to um truly incorporate these policies that an unbiased institution is giving you. And since that's so fluid, it's hard to say, because honestly, this administration, you could, I could probably say, probably not. I don't think the UN can help and not by the UN's fault. I think it's just where our country's administration's values fall. And the next administration, whoever it may be, I could say, yeah, I think this, this administration respects more of international bodies, and I think they can help. Um, they, they will allow the UN to help with these issues. So that question is, it will, it will fluctuate, I think, depending on the country's internal political matters at any time and place. Yeah, I think that's like, although this is, you know, a question that like, I don't think any of us could really answer like properly, um, because it's, you know, it's such a big question. I think that was like a really good summary of like how it might look like in the future. And kind of like asking the last question, I guess. Obviously, we're UNA chapters and we're students, so um, what can we do as student advocates under UNA to support racial equality, or even in a broader sense as university students? You know, how do we implement change that will sustain over a long period of time instead of just change now? Um, I would say that what we're doing right now um, is a good, first step um a lot of I feel like through this process um of the Black Lives Matter movement really taking um of taking a hold of social media and taking a hold of people's lives um it really talks a lot about what being an ally really looks like um and I think that allyship is not talking about Black issues but raising Black voices to talk about Black issues. Um, and I think that what Northwestern is doing, and like, since this is the last question, like, thank you so much for inviting us to have this conversation, but letting us talk about our issue. You could have asked, you know, what some, you know, some of your members that are African-American to talk about this issue, or you could have, you know, maybe had a panel discussion with some different people and to talk about this issue, but you asked us, the only HBCU chapter in the entire organization to talk about this issue. And you looked and you actually read 
our press release and you asked us our opinion. And I think that that's the first step as student advocates is to understand what allyship means. Allyship isn't, you know, cussing somebody out on Twitter because they said all lives matter. Allyship is actually talking about the issues and wanting to see change. The next thing I would say is because we are college students, all of us are eligible to vote. Um, And some of us are almost old enough to run for office. Um, So I think that it is imperative that we as students read the policy, look at the policy, understand the policy on its face, and a lot of things look good. On its face, a lot of things look great. But when you really read into policy, lean into it, you see, hmm, this isn't as great as everybody's making it seem. And keep applying the pressure. Even if, you know, things in November change, you know, still apply that pressure. Like, if you don't see the things happening that were promised, keep applying pressure because at the end of the day it's not about party it's about it's about policy and so i think that if it's not changing just know that we'll keep applying and we'll keep talking about it and um and that's what i say as student advocates is to keep amplifying black voices because that's what allyship really is it's not you know hosting a um a Black Lives Matter, you know, organizing a protest and asking, you know, your white congressman to come speak at it. It's having like a grassroots effort and making sure that you're asking black voices to come and talk about the issue Um, and not really looking for a savior, but just hope, just collaborating and being understanding. And so that's what I think as students we can do Um, and just keep applying pressure because it's working. And I feel like a certain side of the administration um, of the maybe potentially future administration is seeing that pressure and they're understanding it and they're getting called out on it. And I think that um, it's working if it was in my opinion. So that's what I would say. I definitely agree with Maggie and allyship and amplifying Black voices and making sure they have a platform to speak on issues that are very internal to their community. And what I will also say is I think the biggest thing is to help teach, you know, to understand and from a leadership um, perspective is to teach. I know for us, the UNA Harvard chapter, I think it was a big decision for us to release that press release because not even UNA headquarters had released any statement yet. And we were kind of nervous. I was like, yeah, yeah, I had emailed I had emailed them and I was like, are y'all gonna say something or am I gonna have to say something? Like I had messaged them on Instagram and so we were we were kinda like, Oh man, they might not back us on this and we don't want to so we had to take a risk and say, you know what? At the end of the day, we are the only HBCU chapter. SDG goal number ten does um amplify um and speak on reducing racial um, inequality. So why are we holding back? So we just did it. I said, Maggie, press send, release it. So this is what it is. So now we are, we have to stand by our word and to our surprise and to our um, relief and just satisfaction, we had such a positive response. And I think that we have to be leaders and teach other students and other advocates on how to come across these issues. Some people don't know how government works. Some people don't know how policies work. 
They don't know who to vote for. They don't know how to vote. They don't know how to register. They don't know what the SDGs are. They don't know how SDGs, in a sense, can really reflect racial inequalities. Even though that's number 10, we talked about environmental racism. We talked about certain things where one um, race or class can be marginalized just because of how this hierarchical system is created, not just in America, but in other parts of the world. It's always going to be a majority. And a lot of times that majority has the power and has the privilege, right? And the SDG goals don't outwardly reflect that. We have one SDG goal number 10, but we're also, we talk about climate action, but we don't talk enough about environmental racism. I think we're starting to more about, we have to make those apparent that no matter what, the ICG goal is there's always going to be some component of the majority and the minority. And whoever has the privilege, whatever country, whatever class, race, et cetera, is going to see the benefit of the SDG goal before, before the minority. So I think we need to teach and educate people so they know what they're doing when they're advocating. We have to talk to our Congress people. UNA is an advocacy organization. I was just on a call last week um, with a representative from Virginia, I think District eight or 11, I don't remember, but we were trying to push for him to sign the H1, H100 um, resolution, which is for another re resolution to be passed for racial equality. There are more steps being taken. The man had, um, representative had not signed yet, and we were calling and talking to a staff member to push this representative to sign. And so as UNA, we have the power to do that. We can email our Congress people from whatever state, from our college it is in we can look at the policies that either backing or not backing what's being put on the table in terms of congress or the senate we can help host the meeting and really push for that person to sign that's something i really want to bring to my chapter especially during u.n week in october i really want us to call our representatives and say hey uh, listen this is something that's really going to benefit um, people in the Black community. We, re we really need this right now. You said on your platform, we, we went on your website, you are for um, racial equality, et cetera. Now, show us that you mean what you say and pass this resolution. You have no reason not to at this point unless you're, you, know, not, you're not, you don't want to be held accountable for what you signed up for. So I think to teach, to advocate, to call and bother and harass your Congress people, because that's literally what they signed up for for the job. So I think those are really great ways to um, support racial equality. And just as university students, these are things we have access to do. We just have to make the time for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think both of your answers today were so great and insightful. I'm sure that every one of our audience today can, you know, take away something, whether it be looking at more ways that can be involved in politics or UNA or UN-based activities. It also really helped me as well to understand the kinds of conversations we should be having. Um, so with that, thank you guys so much for taking the time to join us on our podcast today. Thank you for tuning into today's episode on SDG 10. And a special thank you to UNA Howard University's UNA chapter and Ona and Maggie for having this discussion with me. We hope you'll join us for our next episode, which will be out next month. See you next time.